There is now less than nine months to go until the UK leaves the European Union. Last week, the government published its white paper on the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And last night, the Brexit Customs Bill was passed in the House of Commons by the narrowest of margins. When it comes to Brexit, UK politics remains highly divided and uncertain. Meanwhile, the EU has yet to provide a detailed response to the government's proposals, but remains keen to get a deal and avoid a cliffhanger Brexit outcome. Time is short to conclude the negotiations which will take place in the build-up to the October summit. In this webcast, we will discuss the progress that we think is the likely scenario for the outcome of the negotiation process and what all of this means for day one business readiness. To help me consider these issues, I'm joined by Anna Wallace, Director of Political Relations, Phil Brown, Senior Trade Advisor, and Julia Onslow-Cole, Head of our Immigration Team. Don't forget, you can submit questions on screen for any of the panellists, and we'll try to get to as many of these as possible. So, Anna, it's been a busy time for the UK negotiation team, the government, and in the UK Parliament. Can you summarise for us where we, where we are and where things are still to come? Sure, Andrew. Well, I was um, reminded by someone recently that the Article 50 negotiations were to come in two phases. There would be the phase one, so all of the exit issues, and then phase two, where we'd start talking about the future trading relationship. And we actually made quite quick progress in terms of the exit issues in the first part of the Article 50 negotiations, coming up to the December Council last year, where we had agreement on those issues of citizens' rights, the bill and the Irish question. That was quite quickly followed in March by agreement around transitions, so maintaining the status quo until the end of 2020. Uh, and then we uh, um, also had the passage of the withdrawal bill, and you have Michelle Barnier now saying that about 80% of the exit issues are agreed. So that's all very good. But since March, we've kind of been stuck a little bit and we haven't quite made it over the line into that phase two negotiations. So what exactly should the future relationship between the UK and the EU be? In the last couple of weeks, the cabinet were locked down up in Chequers um, to work out what their negotiating position should be. And that culminated in the white paper, which, as you mentioned, was published last week. So with those two events, what the government will be seeking to do will be really to unlock the negotiations and move us out of the exit discussions into the future trading arrangements, which, of course, we know is, is key for businesses because time is running out. The expectation was that we would have the deal agreed, whatever it would look like, by the October summit. Most pundits now reckon that that's probably going to slip to December if a deal is to be reached. Um, and then, as we know, that takes about three months uh, in the early part of 2019, ahead of the formal exit at the end of March. OK, so, so in terms of the likely scenarios of the negotiation process, sort of where would you see we are on a spectrum of potential outcomes? So before um, today and before the last couple of weeks, the, the two topics that we've been talking about, or the two issues we've been talking about are the likelihood of a no deal and what we've been calling a Canada plus plus. And the reason for that is because we saw the UK as heading outside of the single market, outside of the customs union and ending a freedom of movement. And one thing that I thought it was noticeable in the white paper last week is that the government was at pains to say it would still be leaving the single market, leaving the customs union and ending freedom of movement. We did see in the white paper last week a little bit of a softening or a pinkening of the, the government's red lines, in particular around the role of the ECJ. 
So the government had suggested that, for example, the UK might accept some role for the ECJ in terms of certain industries like pharmaceuticals, chemicals, aviation. And actually, these are areas that we've identified before as potentially adding some pluses onto what otherwise is a Canada-based deal. Um, there is a real question about whether there is a softening around the arrangement for goods. That's certainly what the government was aspiring to in the white paper last week. Question mark whether the EU will accept it. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. <clears throat> but I think there is a very real reality that because we're this far into the process and only now are we really start to think about those phase two issues, that we simply run out of road. Uh, and then actually we run out of time to get all of the issues agreed in the time that we have left to get them ratified by the various institutions on the EU and the UK side um, before we hurtle towards 30th of March next year. Uh, and what do you think the scope is for a sort of a agreement in principle, but actually quite a lot of negotiation takes place after the 29th of March next year? I think there is a very real chance that... Um, I think the continental fudge is the way that I've heard it described by some people before, that we do just enough between now and the end of year uh, to get us through the exit issues. And that actually some of the real detailed questions about what the future trading relationship looked like only come probably not even after March 2019, probably after the European elections next May. Um, so it's only really that in the sort of summer next year that we get into the detail. Just a final word on that. There is then another risk that if transitions are agreed, and of course nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, that moves out our planning timeline to the end of 2020. That's great from a business point of view, it gives you a bit more time to think about it. But of course, if we still don't have the details during that time, there's a risk that that cliff edge just gets moved out by 18 months. Right, okay. So Phil, I mean, as talked about the scenarios we think are most likely at the end of the negotiations, can you bring to life for what it means for business in terms of deal or no deal? Um, and how they will need to start to think about things more, more progressively. Sure. And I think the first thing to say is building on what Anna's already said, we now have three scenarios. We're talking about two scenarios for companies to plan against, but we have a third now. So we have a, what I would call a high alignment deal scenario, which would build upon then what the UK has set out in the white paper. We have a low alignment deal scenario that builds upon the EU-Canada free trade agreement, the CETA. And then we have no deal. So let's start with the high alignment scenario. What would this mean for businesses? Well, for the majority of manufacturing companies, this deals with most of their concerns. It would mean no tariffs on UK or EU goods, entirely frictionless borders, and full harmonisation on regulations, including the sensitive areas, uh, medicines and chemicals in particular. So in the short term, this looks like a really good deal for businesses, but businesses will be concerned in the longer term because the UK would lose its influence over deciding these standards and the technical regulations. And therefore, over time, inevitably, these would be designed in a way that favours EU companies over UK companies, impacting on our future competitiveness. Turning to services, the UK has taken a rather different approach, where it's been explicit that it's going to favour flexibility over market access. Although, as you'd expect, when you look at the white paper, they've aimed very high on market access too. Now, this is really important because the UK is really strong on services. Um, a third of our services go to the EU. We have a 28 billion annual trade surplus on services trade with the EU, compared to a 95 billion deficit on goods trade. Of those areas most likely to be affected, financial services is one of the standouts, and the UK is now clear that it wants to build upon the EU equivalence arrangements rather than the mutual recognition agreement that was being sought by the city. Crucially, of course, and Anna's already talked about the negotiations in the EU dimension, 
This proposal is not consistent with the EU's red line around the indivisibility of the four freedoms. Although actually when you look at deals such as the deal with the Ukraine, you do see them flexing quite a long way on carving out goods as separate from the other areas. And you can see that the UK is looking at it through that lens. So we'll have to see how the EU handles this. But I think when we look at the high alignment scenario then, I don't think it's the white paper. I think that's the starting point for the UK's position. What we're most likely to find and we end up if we follow this route is something that looks much more akin to the full membership of the customs union, in my view. The EU will want to knock out the flexibilities we've built into it. And I think in the short term, at least, the EU will be looking and thinking, well, maybe we'll get them to stay in the single market too. The big question, of course, is would they show flexibility on immigration in order to allow this to be acceptable in the UK? And that's certainly a big if. So that's the high alignment deal. The low alignment deal then builds upon the Canada, so a Canada Plus or a Canada Plus Plus deal. This would mean zero tariffs on all or the majority of goods of UK EU origin, and rules of origin would determine whether they would be applicable or not for those reduced tariffs. Customs will be introduced with increased costs, although they would be highly facilitated and streamlined, so over time the delays would probably be fairly limited. And then in sensitive regulated areas for goods or many of the services sectors, so some of the more sensitive ones, financial services, audiovisual, pharmaceutical, chemicals, uh, some of the professional services, for example, there would be negotiated market access. So we get less market access in some areas, pretty good deal in others, and, and not much in others too. And then we turn to what the WTO deal looks like, the no deal, sorry. <laughs> um, what would that look like? Well, that would mean on tariffs, zero tariffs on some products like pharmaceuticals, single digits on most manufactured products, to much higher on agricultural products and clothing, for example. Customs would be introduced, no facilitations, increased costs, severe risk of delays in the short term, longer term risk nonetheless. And those areas that I mentioned about being sensitive and highly regulated, we would just have market access as though we were a third country. So some companies operating in some of those areas, for example, a UK company wanting to sell medicines onto the EU market, they wouldn't be able to, unless there is some kind of deal, so they wouldn't be able to in that no deal scenario. So just um, sort of a perspective from me on in terms of where we're going to end up, very much building on, on Anna's view. Um, when you look at what the EU wants and they look at what the UK has set out, I think they would be very happy with a customs union and single market deal. But clearly we need the flexibility on, on immigration and there's a big question mark whether they would show that flexibility. They've already set out a Canada deal as being an option and they set that out in March as the desired end state. So they could accept that too, as long as both of them have the Irish backstop situation mm -hmm. sorted out. In the UK, though, there's no majority, it seems, in the UK for any of these possible end states. In a way, the, the UK government has trashed the Canada deal as an outcome to some extent by aiming towards a high integration model. So, so where do we end up? Well, there's no majority anywhere for, for no deal. But actually, with time, as you were saying, Anna, with time now, you know, we've only got eight months to go. There's a lot to be worked through. So ironically, given the UK's newfound flexibility, in, in my view, and I've always been clear that I think we'll have a deal, and I think we still probably will, the no-deal scenario looks quite a lot more likely than it has done in the past. So, Phil, on, on that basis, I mean, I know you're working with a number of businesses whose trade activities may be impacted by this, these scenarios. Mm. What, what are sort of work you're actually doing with these firms? Well, I'm working as part of a Brexit team, and we're working across a whole range of sectors, different size companies, different levels of Brexit readiness. Um, and some of my colleagues, including you, Andrew, are working uh, with companies in the more highly regulated sectors actually implementing their Brexit plans now. What I'm seeing, I've seen a couple of um, interesting trends, I'd say, over the last couple of months. 
The first one is that companies, um, some companies are going beyond looking at the direct impacts of Brexit, so tariffs and customs and people, to the more indirect strategic aspects of it. So we're working with a client at the moment looking at transfer pricing impacts, treasury, processes, systems, IT, technology, how they're going to take decisions about where to invest and when. The second trend I'm seeing is this um, Brexit is becoming a priority and is certainly on uh, a lot of internal auditors' deep dive assurance plans this year. And we're finding this is a really effective way at helping companies really test their Brexit readiness and um, identify areas they need to sharpen up. In terms of what companies do, given all the uncertainty, um, for clients who, who haven't seen them already, we have PwC's eight no regrets decisions and they're available on our website. And these are just really practical measures that companies can take that generally have a relatively low cost but would have a high impact in any of the scenarios. So for example, knowing your supply chain, communicating with your people, um, signing up for government facilitations, reviewing your contracts. Um, so all really practical measures. And one of those which sort of underpins the others was actually your no-regret decision, Andrew, which is mm. planned to be agile. And I think the, the fact is, these negotiations are going to go down to the wire. As you say, Anna, we're not going to have an agreement in October. It's going to push out to the back end of this year, possibly early next year. So with very little time left and very little window to know what the, what the outcome is until March, and with the likelihood of no deal therefore increasing, I think it's really essential that companies are really well prepared with contingencies in place so they can respond agilely and quickly as things become clearer over the coming months and actually, quite frankly, probably towards the back end of this year. Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, and if we just move, move to people for a minute, I mean, I think, you know, the politics has been full volume for the last mm -hmm. uh, six, nine months, but, mm -hmm. but the subject of, of, of individual people has sort of faded away a little bit from the agenda. So, for example, if I'm a French citizen in the UK thinking about what I should be doing next, what sort of advice would you give me? Well, I think we hit a big milestone in June because the government pu published its statement of intent and they had really well signposted the direction of travel for what they were going to do for EU citizens. But in June, with the statement, we have a lot of detail about the EU settlement scheme. And now for the first time, EU citizens can actually see what the scheme is about and what the future holds. If you're a French citizen and you're living in the UK, you don't have to do anything until the end of transition, which is December 2020. And in fact, in the statement of intent, the government's saying they're going to give people an extra six months up until June 2021 to uh, register. So really, you've got a long time before you actually have to do anything. But you may like to uh, register your rights under the existing system. And you may like to do that because either you want to accelerate getting British citizenship or perhaps you want to sponsor a non-EU dependent. So those are the reasons why you might want to take action now. And if you do um, register and obtain permanent residence, when the new EU settlement scheme is open, you can uh, go online and you can transfer that status to the new system. Mm -hmm. So when we actually have a look at this new system that the government has explained in the statement of intent, you can see it is a very simple system. It's document light and people will be able to go online or use an app on an Android. And there's basically three different factors that they have to satisfy. The first is identity. So they have to prove their identity in this very simple online system. 
um, by their passport or an identity document. The second area is that they have to prove that they've been here living in the UK and if they've been here for five years they'll get settled status or less than five years pre-settled status. And for this, the Home Office is actually going to reach into HMRC and look at the PAYE records so people don't have to provide any documents if they've been here and employed. And they're going to look at DWP and, and the benefit system. And then the third area is suitability, where the government is going to check whether or not there's any uh, criminal convictions. Right, OK. And, 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 that, and that sounds reasonably straightforward for, for individuals, but mm -hmm. employers, I mean, how can they support their employees and what should they be doing now? Yes. So I think it's um, a really good idea that employers actually communicating with their workforce and particularly EU citizens. Um, the government is actually uh, issuing its own set of communications soon to support employers, um, but we're supporting a lot of employers with webcasts about the future registration scheme. And also I think it's very good if they just double check all their PAYE records to make sure there's no duplicate national insurance numbers so that when EU citizens actually apply to register, there is a very clean record and a very clear record and there's no delays. Um, and then I think they need to consider whether they want to support their EU citizens by paying the, the uh, registration fee. And also, ultimately, in, in 2021, they're going to have to make sure that they do right-to-work checks for their EU citizens. Right, OK. I mean, that, that's pretty clear. So the Trade White Paper last week made reference to the mobility framework. Yes. Uh, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about what that might mean for EU individuals who might be thinking about coming to the UK? Yes. Well, I think as Anna and Phil have really pointed out, the thing about the White Paper is that that's our starting position, but we don't know what the EU is going to say about it. And obviously the EU has quite a lot to say about freedom of movement. The um, idea of the mobility um, framework that was set out in the white paper is that there will be visa-free travel for it between the UK and EU. And also there'll be some sort of scheme like the working holiday maker scheme we have for Australian and Canada, so for some youth mobility scheme. And then something for intra-company transfers but there's nothing for family members, there's nothing for um, permanent employees. And it may be that the EU actually um, have some comments on this kind of mobility framework, particularly from those uh, EU countries which are um, sort of more economically um, ina uh, inactive and they might you know, be concerned that there's no provision for um, low paid workers to come mm -hmm. into the UK. I think that will be a concern and it might you know, affect their comments on the mobility framework. Right, okay. Well, we'll now go to some questions from the audience. So, um, I mean, Anna, to begin with, we, we've sort of articulated three scenarios, low alignment, high alignment and no deal. Um, wh where do you think the probabilities lie on each of those as, as, as options? Well, I'm going to resist putting numbers against them. Um, but I think, I don't know, and Phil might disagree with me on this one, I reckon that we're heading towards a low alignment, and that's because of the politics of this. I think it's very difficult to see how... Um, well, if I start with the point that the Trade Secretary stayed in his post after the Chequers summit, when the Foreign Secretary and the Brexit Secretaries didn't, that was because he was reassured that we would be able to strike our own trade deals on the basis of the white paper publication. 
I'm skeptical that the EU see it that way. I think it's very difficult to achieve totally frictionless um, border trade without being part of a customs union, which would necessitate us leaving the single, uh, um, being outside of the customs union. So I reckon we're closer to a low alignment, although as Phil rightly said, I think that the chances of a no deal have gone up. And in a weird way, what we've seen with this kind of softening of the governance position is a slight polarisation of the, of, the, of the options, either something that might take us towards higher or something take, that takes us closer towards no deal. Right. So if you just sort of, if you just, if you just hedged it. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, we were having a conversation just before about this, actually. I, 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 so I understand and I, I sort of I share your view, more likely a deal, although no deal has become more of a likelihood than it, than it was. Um, I just, I, I think it's very hard for the government to make the case around a low alignment deal now, having sort of essentially taken the view that the economic harm of the, the frictions, particularly for manufactured products, would mm. have necessitated moving towards a high alignment scenario. Um, so I think that's a hard argument to make and a hard argument to get through the UK Parliament, although we know the EU would be interested. So, you know, I, again, I, I have to hedge it, actually. Uh, for me, I think um, the, it's quite unclear now yeah. which of those three scenarios we'll end up in. Yeah. Hence, government companies need to be really ready to be agile. And if the worst case scenario looks too bad, then and, and start taking action on it, as we know some companies are. And just an extra word there as well about the, the high alignment deal. I mean, as Phil said, it, the white paper that's currently drafted is very good for goods, not so good for services. And so if you are in a service sector like we are at PwC, I think there's a bit of a risk that you um, end up compromising your ability to strike free trade deals in order to have frictionless trade. But that might be a policy decision that people are willing mm -hmm. to make. It seems very difficult to imagine that we would compromise freedom of movement and controlling our borders, which we know the Prime Minister herself puts at the mm. forefront. Mm. So then you might end up with lower access on the services side in order to be able to control immigration, mm. but losing the ability to strike your own trade deals in order to maintain frictionless trade. And, and influence then over the standards as in, well. And losing influence mm. over the standards. Mm. Mm. Some, some real challenges. It's a it's real, it is. It is. We didn't say it was easy. Um, in recent headlines, Michel Barnier said that eighty percent of the Brexit deal with the UK had been agreed. I mean, it, it sounds that that's a statement which seems to me at odds with what we've been talking about. I think he said the exit deal. So the exit part yes. of the Brexit mm -hmm. deal, yeah. um, which I think is probably about accurate. If people cast their minds back to when they published the um, exit agreement back in, I think, March, there were big, big sections of it that were green, yeah. large sections that were amber. Uh, interestingly, not many that they'd put in red. Those were just yeah. left white. Um, but I think those sections are even fewer now because, of course, while we've been debating these big, big political questions, the technical discussions have been ongoing in Brussels, and actually that's what takes you up to that 80%. Yeah. So, so I think that is probably fair. Right, OK. And then for Julia, what sort of communication should be uh, employers be making to their employees now? Um, and also the government says the new registration scheme will be easy. Do you think that's going to be the case? Um, so the communications, I think, is that, you know, now we have the statement of intent, we have a lot of detail about the registration scheme. We know that the scheme is going to be piloted around October time, that people have to apply, um, you know, that people can apply uh, from March next year. So I think there's a lot of communications that employers can make about the actual scheme. Um, whether or not it is easy, I truly believe it. it is very simple. I mean, I have seen the questions. They are very simple. It is very easy to upload your documents. Um, I think in, in total there's just 
you know, a handful of questions. And I think it's quite revolutionary for the Home Office to be able to actually reach into other government departments and pull in information, which really saves people a lot of time. So, you know, I think every, everything is there to make it very simple. Right, OK. And just a reminder, we'll have a few more questions, but if you've got any questions, then please don't forget to submit them now on screen. Um, for Phil, there's been a lot of discussion about trusted trader schemes and being the answer to the challenges at the border. Is this something all businesses should be applying for now? Well, that's a good question. And the really the simple answer is not all businesses should be applying for it now. Um, only companies that are already trading with the rest of the world, so non-EU, UK trade, can actually apply for trusted trades or, or trader or authorised economic operator schemes as they're known. Having said that, we know that HMRC are looking at this. And when you look at the UK's proposal and just the logic of trying to facilitate these borders, whatever form of MaxFAC or New Customs Partnership or, or, or facilitated customs arrangement um, that, that the UK may adopt, um, that will depend on companies being authorised economic operators. So the slightly longer answer then is not now if you're not trading with the rest of the world, but keep a good watch on it because this will be really important to maximising the, 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 um, the, the, the flexibilities and the facilitations in the future arrangement. Okay, right. And we've got one, one for financial services, which I'll probably answer, which is um, the white paper focuses mainly on goods, not services. Uh, specifically for the financial services sector, will this change the current planned activities that banks have? Uh, I mean, the answer at the moment is, is no. And I've spoken to a number of our banking clients over the last uh, few days. Um, and partly because from a European perspective, they've still stated that uh, from a regulator's perspective that firms, until things are legally certain, uh, then banks should not be relying on any potential deal. Therefore, 29th of March 2019 is the deadline uh, from which you have to assume that you need to be authorised in, in an EU location and ready to do business. Um, so firms are absolutely continuing uh, to con 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 complete their, their programmes. There is a lot of work to do. Um, and, and therefore, really, it's full steam ahead. And I think we'll perhaps see an uptick in activity in, in the autumn as people potentially move some of their employees into their new EU locations. So, final question. Um, what, are, what are the chances of walking away without a deal? Perhaps, Anna. <laughs> a nice high note to end on. <laughs> um, honestly, I think the political risks are very, very high. Um, the Prime Minister wouldn't be seeking to call an early recess if she didn't get the sense that there was trouble afoot. Um, I think that there is real, real pressure on her to potentially bang her fists on the table in the autumn and say that that deal's not good enough and, and to walk away. We know that there are some parts of her party that think that a no deal is better than a bad deal. I think though what you've seen from the EU side in the last probably three, six months is an understanding of that difficult position that the Prime Minister is in. And now you might hear some commentators argue, well, now that they see that she's in a weakened position in the UK, don't they want to go in for the kill? Actually, I think that you're seeing a different response. You're seeing an EU that recognises that this is a Prime Minister that is weak in her Parliament, and therefore she needs the support of the EU to make sure that she gets through these final stages of the Brexit negotiations. So I think that's probably partly why you didn't see them dismiss the white paper proposals last week out of hand. I think they will be willing to try and have the conversation and see where both sides can adopt some flexibility so that they can absolutely avoid that no deal um, uh, 
position if they can. Of course, they did say also at the June summit when progress hadn't been made that they were encouraging organisations, both government and commercial, mm. to make sure that they were stepping up their planning for, for no deal, as the UK government has been. And we expect to see a series of technical notices over the summer about the government's own no deal planning. Mm. So I think all sides are recognising that that risk is absolutely bubbling up. But hopefully that will be enough to avert us away from an actual no deal scenario. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. And on that point, that's all we have time for today. We've heard, what we've heard today underlines the conversations that I've been having with my clients. Whilst still waiting for certainty before moving forwards with their detailed plans and preparations, an agreement on our future relationship with the EU is still some time away. Lead times for businesses to design and implement changes mean that even with a transition period, time is short. It is clear to me that it's now time to act. All that remains for me is to thank you all for your questions and to thank Anna, Phil and Juliet for joining me. Thank you very much.